Tonight on 2020, a Diane Sawyer special. In the deep dark hills of eastern Kentucky. Travel inside a world apart. That's the place where I traced my bloodline. Into the creeks and steep hollows of the oldest mountains in America. Home to the descendants of pioneers. Driven by their dreams to claw through these dangerous passes and create an American continent. They are brave, tough, wary of outsiders, steeped in family and faith. They are also America's legendary fighters. On a portionate basis, the Appalachian population has lost more men and women in America's wars than any other part of the American nation. So how is it so many of these people have been left behind? We take you tonight to one of the poorest regions in the nation, where men and women die younger than other Americans, where there's a documented epidemic of drug addiction, cancer, toothlessness, alcoholism, depression. Where the sun comes up about 10 in the morning and the sun goes down about 3 in the day. And yet everywhere in these hills, there are so many people filled with courage and hope. Like Courtney, age 12, who has a dream and a fear. We're not like other people. We can't afford food after food after food. And Sean Grimm, a football superstar of Appalachia, sleeping at night in a truck. 18-year-old Jeremy accepting his life down inside the mines. And six-year-old Erica, who watch her grow up trying to save her mother's life. We need to reinvest in those people. It's a lot easier to blame people for their poverty than to figure out what's next. It has been 41 years since Robert Kennedy called on the rest of America to reach out and help the poorest people of Appalachia find their future again. These poets, fiddlers, America's toughest warriors, now fighting another kind of war in the hard mountains they call home. A Hidden America, Children of the Mountains. Here now, Diane Sawyer. Good evening, glad you're with us. Tonight, after two years of reporting, 1,400 miles of the twisting mountain roads, we want to take you to a part of America I love, my home state of Kentucky, the 300-year-old Appalachian Hills. They stretch from Mississippi to New York, but we're going to spend time tonight in central Appalachia, eastern Kentucky and West Virginia. 2.2 million people live there, and of them, half a million live in a kind of poverty a lot of us cannot imagine. We all know the stereotypes about mountain people, but before you make up your mind, the reality for some in those hills. And in this tough economic time for all in the nation, maybe looking at kids with so much spirit in the midst of so little will renew your faith that Americans are made of very strong stuff. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm going to be working without using paper because they're escalating things so rapidly that I can't take the chance that I ruin my only printer. So, um, I'll be reading through my notes. Um, I have been doing a lot of work looking into what empathy is and congratulations, they've got us being exactly like they are. But anyways, I'll get back to that at some other point. Um, 
lots going on. And I'll be reading through my file here as soon as I find it. And um, I've been looking into the Appalachia area. Why, you say? Well, that's a really good question. How I got there, I can't quite remember. I've been trying to wrap up things before I get to SAC, like what they do in this country. And since I've talked previously about pockets of possible parts of the world that they were likely doing experiments on, you know, those communist countries and things like that, well, what about this country? What were they doing here? How are they doing it? Well, one way to control a population is isolation, right? Split everybody up. They've done a fabulous job of that. But they start with one particular group pretty early on, this group in the Appalachia Mountains. And I didn't know much about Appalachia. I was heavily influenced by the movie Deliverance, and I'll get to that in a minute here. Um, so, yeah, I didn't know much about Appalachia. Um, but after that movie, I have to tell you that um, I don't think I would have probably electively visited there. But my work when I was working doing marketing was major cities, so I would not have found myself there. So, yeah, it has this general feel of hillbillies, banjo music, all these things. So I thought, well, I first got into Appalachia, I think, I was looking at the Cherokees. I think, and remember, I'm just thinking, and then I'm going to be sharing with you <clears throat> all the data that I dug up that have led me to now think this way. And then I have a long way to go from here. But anyways, I think, sorry, I didn't mean to hit that microphone. I think, I think what happened was this. Obviously, the slave deal was fake, but they had to probably cook up the slave deal to come up with, you know, maybe we might find some pictures of black people. So because, you know, they come from that region of the world, it's all primarily darker skin, right? So they probably cooked up that slave story. And what else have they cooked up? Well, likely the cowboys and Indians, right? And um, so I, I, I don't know. So Indians <laughs> intersected when I was looking at the Appalachian Trail. Which Indians? Well, the Cherokee Indians. So it's a big, this file is just a big mumble jumble of things that I've been wandering around with, okay? So, um, because I started out all this looking for pictures of incest victims, okay? And what I found was that the data out there about incest, just generally looking like a regular person would look, not looking into scientific files and all of that, okay? Generally, the idea about incest seems to come from those freaks from Spain with the chin, the Habsburgs. If you look up like 10 most reasons for incest, you'll find the royal incest pictures in there, right? Well, I've already talked enough about the royal incest pictures and that chin and what I think about that. Because remember, they always come up with horrendous stories to cover a very simple one. So yeah, so um, I was looking into incest pictures. Like, what do people who are victims of incest look like? So I got into all this folklore, really, about... Well, we've known for a long time that that's what this looks like, but I didn't really find any more data other than pictures of the same old European freaks. So then I was looking at interviews with people who say they were from ancestral relationships, and those people all happened to be from the Appalachia area. I thought, huh, what's with Appalachia? Well, it turns out there is a lot about Appalachia. 
<laughs> probably their first target area okay so let me get going here okay Appalachia uh, they also um, what they said was they said that children produced from incestuous unions are not always viable in that situation either the fetus fails to thrive or the children are stillborn in this way, incestuous relations are often infertile ones. That part I do tend to agree with. Probably the outcome would be the person that's born out of an incestuous relationship from some DNA that I'm not smart enough to understand probably would make them infertile. Because I'm 100% these hormones are making them infertile, okay? However, if you do manage to have a child through incest, infertility may be surpassed on to your offspring. So some of these things you don't see for a generation or two, right? Also the same with the way that they're flipping different countries. For example, I don't think the first generation of people they likely flipped in some closed off country all got like the most horrendous dose. But really, if we're looking at the last couple hundred years, we're only looking at, you know, just a few generations. So it's really not a stretch. And we could also see now that they're really lousy at this stuff, okay? I mean, this has become a freak show of all the hormone mistakes they're creating. So, yeah, so they went on to say, historically, the infertility has given royal incestuous families no end of trouble, especially given the importance of producing heirs. Yeah, we got that heir business from them, but... I per think I pretty much have tossed that out the window because somebody's having these babies and it's not them. So they have somehow twisted this around in their own little wacko minds to make them still heirs, okay? We may not fully understand how the body passes on immunity from parent to child. See, we don't understand. Well, where's the research, right? But historically speaking, it's pretty obvious that incest does not help. Our DNA needs diversity in order to build a strong immune system. Yeah, well, that's what they're tearing down on us is our immune systems, our blood, our heart, and our immune systems. So that's enough about that incest stuff. I don't believe, I don't believe this is all incest because remember, that would be lazy, okay? Just like I don't believe that uh, autism is all about vaccines. So anyway, so... Um, just look up 12 genetic mutations that can arise from incest and what you'll find are a bunch of royals there, okay? Now let's get back to, I'm going to be switching between the Appalachia people to understand them and the Cherokee Indians, okay? Okay, in the region of Appalachia is and has always been populated with deeply religious people. Some people say otherwise. I believe the religious part. With more than 80 different sects practicing and following their beliefs, including in many areas the art of snake handling. That all comes out of the Appalachia area. Venomous snakes are used to prove faith is sufficient to protect the handler from harm. Catholic Catholicism, excuse me, is viewed with suspicion throughout most of Appalachia. During the 1960 presidential election, John F. Kennedy campaigned heavily throughout Appalachia and especially in West Virginia to downplay his religious views and reassure the populace. 
somebody said in a bit here they weren't that religion, but we'll we'll review what people are saying and come to our own conclusions, okay? So, um, with the exception of the wholesome family image of an Appalachian town, which was presented to the nation by the Andy Griffith Show. Andy Griffith Show was a big part in this. As a matter of fact, Andy Griffith was a master deceiver in this country, very popular on the TV for kids and stuff. I remember the Andy Griffiths. Everybody was so friendly and so nice, and they would just lock people up overnight. <laughs> so, yeah, he was from uh, Mount Airy, North Carolina. And most of what is stereotypical of the area was created by outsiders. So I don't know. I'm just going to tell you what we know about it, okay? But Appalachia had many contributors of its own to American culture outside of the stereotypical image of the area as backwards, ignorant, and poverty-stricken. They, when you first think of Appalachia, I think most people commonly think of that movie Deliverance, and from that movie, we think of banjo, banjo playing from Appalachia. But actually, the banjo is derived from African instruments, and banjos were made by slaves throughout the American South. Well, we don't believe the slave part, but it was in the mountains of Virginia where the instrument first became a part of the American music scene. The modern five-string banjo was popularized in the area around Apotomac Courthouse, Virginia by Joel Sweeney in the 1830s. Sweeney populated banjo music on American stages. He also went on to do the Virginia Minstrels in Great Britain. So, banjos spread rapidly across the United States from the instruments roots in Appalachia. There's also something about this dulcimer, which I don't have a clue. It's D-U-L-C-I-M-E-R. It was developed in the Appalachian Hills in the early 19th century. I'm telling you some of this because I think that we can glean some truth by looking at what they describe as their early background of music, okay? Because it might not be as polished or as scrubbed out. The Scots and Irish immigrants of the Appalachian region developed the instrument known by many names, but coaxially as the dulcimer in the 19th century, prompting music history scholars to seek a similar instrument in decades. Okay, uh, an instrument rarely found outside of the Appalachia before the 1960s. We keep roaming around this 1960s, right? It gained popularity where American folk music and the Rolling Stones performed Lady Jane um, about folk music. Another interesting thing that ties the Appalachians to the fake Indians is basket, weaving, basket weaving and making thrived in Appalachia. Throughout early American, basket making was an art practiced by settlers and some styles copied from the natives used for available materials and some adapted by those made in their homelands of Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Baskets woven by Appalachian settlers varied in shape, style, and manner of use based on the types of bark and reeds available in the local wilds and the shape of the items that were made to carry. Basket weaving remains an art form throughout Appalachia. Some are ongoing commercial concerns, creating designs available for purchase in souvenir shops and online storefronts. 
so yeah, um, with insufficient pasturage to raise cattle for beef, hogs and poultry became the mainstays for meat, and the need to preserve pork led to the farmed, the famed Virginia and Tennessee hams. Yeah, they still sell those Virginia and Tennessee hams. <laughs> this is full of odd, odd details, right? Okay, the, those hams are considered the equivalent of the great hams of Westphalia and Parma in Europe. Appalachians were forced to become independent on themselves. As the rest of the United States grew to the west and its cities expanded, fueled by the ports and the railroads, the regions of Appalachia were largely bypassed. Other than trains, which existed to exploit the region's natural assets, which was lumber and coal, by the 1860s, citizens of Cincinnati, Ohio, well west of Appalachia, could purchase fresh oysters from barrels packed with salt, which had been harvested. I don't know what this means. Oh, yeah, they were just harvesting stuff and shipping it by train. I started reading that thinking, where did I get this from? Okay. Um, in the remote Appalachian communities, including, this is where it gets very interesting, suppress, control, and impoverish Appalachia. In the remote Appalachian communities, including the company towns, which arose around the coal mines and logging camps, Appalachians preserved everything which they needed to survive. Apples, cherries, and other fruits grew well in the mountains, as did berries, and they were harvested when ripe and preserved. Canning became an art form in the mountains and is still widely practiced. Meat was preserved by pickling or jerking. Corn was dried and ground into meal, from which it would later become cornbread and mush. The most popular sweetener, given the um, let me see here, given the sparsity of sugar, was honey, and could be found readily in the woods. So anyway, so coal mines, this is where we start to really abuse the population, right? This is where the slaves really were, right? Coal mines in company towns in Appalachia added to the reputation for poverty. The coal mines, which were built to retrieve the fuel for the growing United States by both strip mining and deep evacuation, did more than just scar the landscape. They contributed to the impoverished reputation of Appalachia. They paid wages as low as they could get away with. In the absence of competing jobs, they got away with paying next to nothing. They're also, just as a side note, they're trying to understand why people won't work for them. Well, why people won't work for them is what I'm the most concerned about right now, and it is the lack of empathy. Psychopaths are born without empathy. People have acquired a lack of empathy to alarming detail, but let me not get sidetracked here. This is how places like Appalachia got started and ignored because of our general, overall, all of us included, myself included, lack of empathy for the plight of others. We just viewed them through the lens that we were presented, right? They were presented to us as hicks and hillbillies and what was beneath all that? Well, let's keep talking. So, they what they did pay, they recovered through the establishment of company towns. And this was only in the 30s, okay, people? That was only less than <laughs> 90 years ago. 
What they did pay, they recovered through the establishment of company towns. I just read that. With supplies available for purchase only from company stores. Generation after generation of Appalachian families grew up with the male members' only employment opportunity being the same mine as his father and grandfather before him had worked. Appalachia's other big employment opportunity, other than sustenance farming, was in the logging industry, which engaged in practices similar to those of the coal industry, paying low wages and collecting back from them in the rentals on housing and the sales in company stores. They had houses. Remember I was talking about, remember that guy um, in Colorado, that Dr. Bieber, he was, that place was a company town store that they set up that deal. Interesting, huh? Yeah, around these company ta- company stores, company towns, probably find some pretty good test areas because anytime they could get people isolated and controlled into groups is probably where they were playing their little tricks, right? So, let me see, where were they here? Those employed in the logging industry did not face the likelihood of an early death due to lung disease, but enough danger existed to make the logging camps equally hazardous to the mines. The railroads offered some potential to escape the cycle of paying one's employer the money one had earned from him, but railroad jobs were more difficult to obtain at Appalachia. They were often filled by men who had learned that trade elsewhere along the system. Education was sporadic and often low quality throughout the region. Education was not a priority throughout most of Appalachia, even as recently as the mid-20th century. Keep them dumb for a reason, right? Does this start to sound pretty familiar? Teaching is a profession, and those practicing a profession were, and in some cases still are, viewed as suspicious throughout Appalachia. Great job, right? They have them suspicious of us, us suspicious of them. So were strangers in the area. Teachers arriving from elsewhere, particularly from New York and New England, were not warmly welcomed by the conservative and cautious residents. The need to work and help pay for one's own upkeep supersede the need to learn from classroom and textbooks. Since how much can be taught about mining coal or felling trees from within the confines of a school? The relationship of education to poverty was simply not a concept for consideration. Although many aspects of Appalachian history are exploded, exploited, exploded, exploited or celebrated within the region, others resent being included in the perception of the region, being considered backwards and compared to the rest of the United States. For example, the famous feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys, there's also some movies about that too, it's a legendary fight between two hillbilly families in the, <laughs> in, the uh, in that region. The Hatfields and McCoys, yeah, it's all made up. But anyway, it really helped to, the Hatfields and McCoys would have been, I think, from around the 20s or something. But anyway, that would have laid the impression in our minds about that region, right? So this feud between the Hatfields and McCoys is presented in plays, musical shows, billboards, parodies, and in advertising and marketing for tourism. 
despite some within the region believing that the feud was an example of the region's slow growth into the modern world. It's all made up. The belief exists that perpetuating its story also perpetuates the stereotyping of residents in the region being illiterate hillbillies. During the heyday of the rural programming, which included the Beverly Hillbillies, many protested against their portrayal. But those Beverly Hillbillies, I looked them up, they were not technically from that region of the country. They were just presented as hillbillies. <laughs> A famous art author from the 1940s, Thomas, what was his name? Thomas Wolfe or something. Thomas Wolfe, he wrote a novel called You Can't Go Home Again. And the novel, he said, he wrote several disparaging references to his hometown in the book. It was called Livia Hill. And he received threats and a hostile reception because um, they think that he was bad-mouthing the place. He was, Wolf was from North Carolina, and the issues he referred to were those of Appalachia. The novel serves as an indication of the resentment which can occur when conditions are revealed which place once... Oh, these people write these long sentences serves as an indication of the resentment which can occur when conditions are revealed which places one's home under outside scrutiny. Well, yeah, we got the outside scrutiny from the media, right? I didn't go over there and write up these stories or write these books or produce these movies. (laughs) A resentment which is prevalent in some areas of Appalachia as a result of its past. Yeah, everybody kind of hates everybody, right? The Hatfields and McCoys were just a perfect example of hate. (laughs) The music of the mountains. This is always interesting. When the settlers to the Appalachia region arrived, they brought with them the music of their homeland, chiefly the ballads of the day. So they did capellas. Um, I don't know about any of this. Um, But they did say that American music genre emerging from the hills of Appalachia during the 20th century. So Appalachia is the home of bluegrass, uh, about the rolling hills of central Kentucky. So bluegrass was an original American. It was developed from the blending over time of the traditional music of the Scots-Irish settlers of Appalachia played on that dulcimer and banjo with the fiddle music of the Irish reels and clog dances. See, they're always doing that dancing stuff, right? His name came from the early performer of the music, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, the Appalachians developed a culture of fierce independence. Yeah, because they're pretty much off of those mountains, right? <laughs> Cut off from outsiders. Okay. Uh, American icons that bought... <laughs> Dolly Parton came from there. Loretta Lynn, look up that one. She was truly a coal miner's daughter or son. Truly a man in a wig. Crystal Gale, Patty Loveless. A couple of good ones in this generation. Naomi and Winona Judd are but a few more. You wouldn't know any of these people. Chet Atkins, these are all old time um, people from Appalachia. So anyway, so yeah, so they uh, brought a lot of music down from those hills. 
But what helped create it, interestingly enough, was Appalachian radio stations helped spread the culture to other areas. In night, and I hope you all have radios, by the way. One last nagging report: get a radio. Okay. In 1937, a radio program originally titled Boone County Jamboree. <laughs> hey, knock it off. I've got these. Uh, the cat is mad at the dog this week. I don't know. It's a little bit too much around here this week. Anyway, so. Okay. 1937. The show was called Boone County Jamboree. That doesn't sound like yeehaw, yeehaw. I guess that's where that yeehaw stuff came from, right? And soon renamed Midwestern Hayride. All those hicks or hillbillies on hayrides, right? They started broadcasting that from Cincinnati station WIW. The program featured live performance of local and regional musicians and performances, many of them Appalachian, including bluegrass music. It was heard across much of the Midwest, exposing the music which had up until then been heard only in the Appalachian communities. It was soon augmented by similar programs on rival stations in West Virginia and moved to television. Okay. It was one of the first exposures of Appalachian culture presented to the nation in a positive light. So, as recent as 2014, studies indicated that in some communities in Appalachia, families were forced to subside on as little as $5,000 per year of income. That's for a whole family, okay? The absence of long-term jobs in some communities led to the acceptance of work as day laborers when available. Families continued to survive by using the barter system or exchanging work. And during the drive for the LBJ, who was a very wicked person, he did this thing called uh, Great Society. And what what they basically do when they launch these um, worthless campaigns to rob money is they use the most vulnerable they use the backs of the most vulnerable for their ad campaigns these people are just truly despicable truly truly and if you think they're going to be cutting any breaks for anybody i think you better hunker down and get ready for what's to come then they have these weird deals about double doors in appalachia kind of interesting but not all that fascinating um because that way you can go in and watch a dead person i don't know but anyway so um it was some country they it was some custom they brought from the old country and I wasn't sure if that was um Scotland. And um I'm not gonna get into all the opioid stuff, but um go look for my shows on they're here on audio also about the Sackler family, about how they set up the opioid epidemic. Uh, it hit Appalachia worse than anybody, okay. Overdose mortality rates for people aged 25 to 44, those in their prime working years, are 70% higher in Appalachia than the rest of the country. Overdose mortality for people aged 15 to 64 are 65% higher in Appalachia than the rest of the country. If this isn't a moving, walking, talking eugenics program in this country, I don't know how much more clearly to talk to you about this stuff. So yeah, so they basically have been killing them off with um, 
you know, they'll be killing them off with drugs. Um, they got the rest of the country. They just got them even worse. So, okay. And then you'll also hear about, oh, yeah, why did I get on to the Indians? <laughs> well, cha-ching, cha-ching. You smell the sound of money. Indian casinos. Do a search for the map of U.S. Indian casinos. Smell that freshly printed money. And interestingly enough, of course, around those casinos is extraordinary amount of Indian poverty. I mean, people in Arizona living in trailers on dusty places close to those casinos, this is, this is beyond um, disgusting. I did some research into Indians. Oh, my brain is just full. How they're treated on the reservations is this way. I'm, I'm kind of jumping over the Indians here. <laughs> you see how my week's been going. Um, what they did on the reservations, first of all, cloister them, right? Get them into reservations. Suspect, right? Um, Indians, also cultures of fairly short people with black hair. I think the Indians are likely the original Jews that were here hanging out. But anyways, I'll get to that later. But anyways, so yeah, um, they have all the markings, right? Um, so they, um, yeah, what they did with the Indians was interesting because remember, with the Indians, we really only see some old bleary photos that are likely made up, or we see paintings of them, right? So go look at some paintings of Indians. And I'll be getting to more about the Cherokees, why I think the Cherokees, Indians also had very prominent noses. They had that darker skin. They also had another way to control us has been to divide us up by languages. And I'll get to that in a minute. Indians had their own language. They're also hanging out on reservations. You really can't get off an Indian reservation once you get on one. Uh, because I'm just going from memory here. Um, when you're on a reservation, it's federal property. Okay, So it, it has all these weird jurisdictions to start with. So you're on this reservation. Let's say your neighbor next door rapes you. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you're, you're on a reservation with people you spent your whole life with, right? Big decision. Are you going to turn them in or are you going to just, just go out and do whatever? Well, if you turn your neighbor in, um, the worst penalty, and I can't remember all the reasons why. <laughs> Reservations, trust me, they're really screwed up. Uh, if you turn your neighbor in for raping you, the most they will get for that crime, if, 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 because you have to go through several jurisdictions. You have the Indian jurisdiction, you have the federal, you have the sheriffs. I mean, they have they have conglomerated to the point there's no, no justice, right? So if you go and decide to rat out your neighbor for raping you, uh, if it makes it past all these jurisdictions, if, okay, and remember, you're traumatized from being raped and you're living on a poor, living on Indian reservation. So <laughs> where's your energy level going to be for fighting this deal, right? So, um, so let's say, let's say you muster up the strength and you just go wild and um, you just fight this all the way to all these jurisdictions. Well, the worst penalty, as I recall, was going to be like a year, okay? But they will also get time if they were locked up any time in between. They'll get time off for time served. So your neighbor who raped you may only end up serving a week or two in jail. And then that neighbor is going to move in right next door to you. So that's, that's justice on Indian reservations. Those people are set up for failure from the word to go. So, But what's interesting is you will have probably heard about the Appalachian Trail. It is generally known, it, it's called the Appalachian National Scenic Trail. 
is generally known as the Appalachian Trail or simply AT. It connects the trail between eastern United States, Georgia, Maine, and it's it's the biggest trail um it's the biggest trail in the world. So I'm not going to go into all the details of the trail, but it's pretty impressive. But what also makes this region impressive, besides the seclusion, lack of outsiders, lack of knowledge, Appalachia region, this one region, according to 2010 census reports, 25 million people. Okay, So a lot of people live in that area, right? Sociological studies in the 60s and 70s helped to re-examine and dispel these stereotypes. I don't know if they dispelled them very well. But here's why they like Appalachia. You smell that money? While endowed with abundant natural resources, Appalachia has long struggled economically and been associated with... Now, what does this sound like? Does this sound like all these other countries? I'll get back to Africa soon. I'm hot on the Africa trail now. But, yeah, they go in, they rave, they rob, they they rob everybody, they flip countries. Same patterns. Exact same patterns. Because um, in the 20s... Large-scale logging and coal mining firms brought wage-paying jobs and modern amenities to Appalachia. Yeah, <laughs> living in a country. You see, what happens once you imprison people long enough, they're more comfortable in their imprisoned surroundings. So, um, by the 60s, the region had failed to capitalize on any long-term benefits from any of these two industries. Yeah, because they didn't get any... Thing from these two industries because they were being robbed. Okay, crime scene. I wish I had one of the things. Crime scene, crime scene, crime scene. Okay, beginning in, I don't know why this goes to the 30s, but beginning in the 1930s, the federal government sought, to, oh yeah, here we get in trouble. When this government wants to help you, run, get on your track shoes. And if you're supporting them and thinking that you're going to spy on the rest of us to help them. Just keep one thing in mind. No sense of loyalty in the end, gang. They're going to ditch all of you little freaks in the end. Everybody's going to get left behind. Only the rich and the most powerful will ride out of this thing. But they're going to need all these little freaks on social media to make this deal work. So just think about that when you're spending time on social media. Everybody's going to go bye-bye. No one is going to get saved in the end because they don't believe in saving anybody but themselves. And if all these shows I've done haven't shown you anything, I hope that will sink in. So, beginning in 30s, the federal government, yeah, beginning with the New Deal initiatives. What another rob job, okay? Um, that God was a big concern for us. Yeah, I, people have said, somebody said... Somebody in an article talked about God wasn't that big in the Appalachia. And that was completely untrue. And somebody else spit back over that one. And here's what somebody from the area said. That God was a big concern for us? What part of Appalachia could they have been in? None. It's nicknamed the Bible Belt for a reason. We're horribly overchurched. 
there's probably 10 churches within every 15-mile radius of anywhere from Alabama to here in Kentucky, then on through Tennessee, Virginia, and Mississippi. There are more churches than doctor's offices, schools, and restaurants combined in my area. Also, we have a southern twang. A few of the older generation might speak with a lot of more improper terminology and hillbilly slang, but we do not by any means have our own language. We speak proper, clear English, obviously. They are correct about us being uninviting and untrusting. That is because of things like this article. We are not vastly undereducated. We haven't been in years. Well, I'd have to argue with him. I looked up the educational stats. But anyway, we know what the rest of the world thinks about us. The misconceptions and false characterizations has led to the outlanders, which no one calls them, by the way. Literally, no one at all looking down on us as if we're below them or beneath them. Yes, they created these people that people would share no empathy for, right? They're just those people, those hillbillies in those mountains. We, I mean, I'm continuing on what he's saying. We are portrayed as stupid, slow, illiterate, and dirt poor with 20 kids barefoot in line for the outhouse and banjo shows with Mountain Dew Mouth and a third grade education. It is nothing near close to this. We're far from illiterate. We're not under church. We're not some type of lost, inbred, degenerate civilization. But ill-intended is now this article exit source of what we aren't. Well, I don't know. I, I can't visit the area, so we're just going to have to take it. It's a very poor area that these fools have strip-mined and robbed, okay? So, yeah, um, the Indians. Yeah, Indians also, another big source of revenue. All those moccasins at the um, <laughs> road shows. And then I looked at Indian casinos. Lots of money in those Indian casinos. I'm talking, I have the number here somewhere I'll get to. Billions of dollars they're raking in those Indian casinos. And I used to wonder about those casinos because they never seemed to really help the people, right? If you're wandered onto an Indian reservation, I spent some time in Arizona. Trust me, don't go there unless you have to, okay? Unless you want to just cry for the rest of the week. Yeah, it is, it is beyond measure the depression of being on an Indian reservation, beyond measure, okay? And it's right here in this country. It's right here in this country. So, yeah, Indians, dark hair. Um, another quote, which got my attention, the mountains kept Appalachia isolated from the rest of the country and from the influence of other people's involvement in their lives. Appalachian culture is a real and functioning culture that is revealed through its arts and crafts, traditional music, traditional foods, its customs. Yeah, there was a, um, when I was selling Vintas, a very large um, Appalachian company there, Southern Potteries. They closed down in the 50s because they were the largest producing pottery manufacturer because of, let me see, plastic. They invented plastic, and they got rid of all the old pottery and stuff. But anyway, so... Modern day, modern day Appalachians try to distance themselves from the hillbilliness um, because many young people try to forget the traditional way. Yeah, the language spoken in Appalachia is unique, also. It is thought to be a blend of 
Scottish-flavored Elizabethan English directly related to the migration patterns of early settlers from these regions. I do believe that part. I do believe these people came from, were early settlers. And that's why they set up, um, possibly they were other Europeans that they convinced to come here for the new life and got you in the woods, tricked, we got you. I think a lot of people were tricked, but I'll have to get back to that later because I just need to get through this data first. <laughs> okay, the word Appalachia is an old Indian word. It has a real definition, endless mountain range. The Indians thought the Appalachian Mountains went on forever and ever. So, um, yeah, the federal government today defines Appalachia as parts of West Virginia, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina. I remember these are only parts of these states, right? Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. It incorporates 397 counties in 13 states and covers a total of 195,000 miles, square miles, and has the current population, well, some places say 20 million, some places say 25 million. So, um, then I don't know why I was thinking about the Indians and these codes. Um, these people always have the same tricks, right? Um, during World War II, and I'm going to be wandering around a little bit here. During World, World War II, they supposedly had the famous uh, code breakers out at Chuckley Park. or Anyways, that Tanner guy, the guy that was supposedly gay who broke the code. Several movies were made about that code breaker. And supposedly, Chuckley Park broke the code for World War II, which helped D-Day or something, okay? Well, we all know that's a lie now, right? But they seem to be big into this code breaker business. <laughs> so, yeah. so when I was wandering around the Indians, um, they also had Indian code breakers. And I thought, well, this doesn't make any bit of sense, right? How could they have Indian code breakers? Okay, let me get this straight. They came over here, supposedly. They ra raided, raped, and robbed all the Indians. And then the Indians decided during World War II to be code breakers for them? I don't know. Some of this stuff starts to not make a lot of sense, right? So um, the um, Native Americans, also known as American, and this will start to make sense how they blend together in a bit here. They were, I think Native Americans are another test population group. And remember, I'm saying think, okay? Dark-haired people, short stature, Look up Native American pictures, okay? Even, you know, all of them have those huge noses and stuff, even in their own pictures. So, and remember, they painted those pictures and stuff, and that makes the Native Americans interesting because any photographs we have of them are, are, are grigged up. We just really have paintings of what these people look like. Well, you know, they usually paint in that... Uh, cleft chin into these paintings and stuff. They paint in that huge old nose they're so proud of. <laughs> okay, so uh, there's, there's, they were called, they're known as American Indians, First Americans, Indigenous Americans, and other terms. They're the indigenous people of the United States, sometimes including Hawaii and territories. 
There are 574 federally recognized tribes living within the U.S., about half of which are associated with Indian reservations. Native Americans are indigenous tribes originally from the United States and Alaska. Okay, Um, but I don't think they came from here. They came from over there, right? Probably the Native Americans likely were a batch of Jews that came over here. They tricked along with the people from um, the mountains. So um, they say, and the Cherokees, Cherokees are got my attention because um, in 1824, the U.S. creates the Bureau of Indian Affairs, okay? <laughs> so we kind we kind of have our entrance date here, right, 1824. The U.S. government creates a federal office that is responsible for handling the country's relationship with the 500 Indian tribes in the U.S. The agency, which, in part, which is part of the War Department, negotiates treaties, sets up Indian schools, and manages trade with the Indians. 1836. Cherokee Indians are forced to walk to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. Now, this is why I think it's the Cherokees, okay? And also, um, Andrew Jackson enters the picture here. And remember, Trump was all about Andrew Jackson. This is just a freak show going on. So let me continue wandering on here. So, yeah, um... President Andrew Jackson, he orders Cherokee Indians off their land east of the Mississippi to unsettled land in Oklahoma. They took the Indians from, (coughs) excuse me, they took the Indians and settled them in the uh, area that we're talking about. That's how I wound up here, okay? Um, Over 4,000 of the Cherokees died on the long walk. I hope nobody died because I was just laughing. Which has come to be called the Trail of Tears, okay? And that happened in 1836. They they, they herded up these, I think maybe they just, this was a relocation plan, okay? They got these people over here. Hey, we're going to drop you off in Oklahoma. Then they thought, no, no, wait a minute here. Let's move them over here. We got this area over here that we can dump these people in. And this will be easier to control and manage. Hey, look over here. It's in the woods. <laughs> Not many ways in or out. And then we'll set up this deal that we don't want anybody to come here, do we? So let's create this aura that it's a bunch of stupid hillbillies. And, you know, here's my impression. My impression of what that area is like. And you're going to think, man, I didn't know you were so... I'm not being a racist, okay? I'm just talking about my impression based on my American programming about the Appalachian area. I would picture driving across a state line and being pulled over by a sheriff, and he would saunter up to the car, probably with a toothpick in his mouth, and he'd go, hey, what are you doing in this park? Been in this park for long? (laughs) Let me see your ID. As he's gazing around your car. I think you better leave here. Uh, probably not going to welcome you as much as you like. So, yeah, I, I think that they would make it very unwelcoming there. But this is just my imagination, okay? Because, remember, I'm not the only person that got programmed into all this stuff, okay? So, how do they take our eyes off being empathetic for other people? Get us to look the other way. Don't see them as people. See them as some dirty creeps who probably deserve this kind of treatment. That's the lack of empathy, right? So, 
September 1851, the U.S. and eight Indian nations signed the Fort Laramie Treaty. The U.S. signs the Fort Laramie Treaty with eight, of course there's got to be eight, Indian nations in the North Plains. The treaty says the Indians will allow settlers safe passage to Indian territory in exchange for money. But the treaty falls apart when gold is discovered. (laughs) Okay. And settlers stay in Indian territory. Is it always about the natural resources, or am I just like starting to imagine things? <laughs> yeah. 1874. Gold is discovered in the Black Hills of South Dakota on Indian land. With the announcement that gold had been discovered in the Black Hills of South Dakota, Lakota Sioux tribes fought to keep white people from digging up their land. The land had been promised to the Lakota in the Fort Laramie Treaty. Well, that's a problem when you make a treaty with a psychopath. It doesn't turn out very well. June 25, 1876. <laughs> General Custer dies in the Battle of Bighorn with the Lakota Sioux. General George Armstrong Custer and his troops are killed in the Battle of Bighorn with the Lakota Sioux. Custer had been ordered to wait for help, but when he saw a chief sitting bull in the area, he decided not to wait. (laughs) More souvenirs and trinkets for sale. (laughs) 1877. This was 1876, 1877. One year later, after Custer's dead, one year later. The U.S. government cancels the Fort Laramie Treaty. (laughs) Wanting to own the land where so much gold has been discovered, the U.S. government cancels the Fort Laramie Treaty. (laughs) The U.S. takes control of the Black Hills and 40 million acres of Lakota land. (laughs) July 20th, 1881. Chief Sitting Bull surrenders to U.S. troops. (laughs) The leader of many Sioux uprisings, Chief Sitting Bull, surrenders to U.S. troops and is sent to prison in South Dakota. Later, he will spend one season traveling with Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. (laughs) December 29, 1890. Um, Over 300 Lakota Sioux die in the Wounded Knee Massacre. And another thing you notice with these patterns here, just like with the Jews, okay, everything has to be just gruesome, bloody, horrific, right? They didn't just kill the Jews. They supposedly burned them alive in in ovens and stuff, right? They didn't just torture them. They tortured them while their eyes were still open. And remember, I don't think any of us would have been able to write any of this history because we just really just don't think or see it this way, okay? So anyways... Let me get back to December 29, 1890. Over 300 Lakota Sioux die in the Wounded Knee Massacre. U.S. troops worried about the Sioux were going to destroy white men go to Pine Hill in South Dakota to take their guns. It is not known who fired the first shot, but the result was a massacre of over 300 Indians, mostly women and children. I rest my case. Okay. 
um, December 1907, this Cherokee guy becomes the first Native American to represent Oklahoma. This guy named Jim Thorpe in 1950, the greatest athlete of the 20th century, part American, part Caucasian. I think every athlete that you see all these football, every athlete that's a man is really a woman pumped up on testosterone. I think athletes are just another segmented sort of society. They just have groups of people that they make athletes, and those groups of people get special attention with the hormones and stuff, right? They just can't have randomly everybody trying to be athletes and be taking hormones. (laughs) They probably come out of the athletic hormone division. So then there was this famous thing about Native Americans when this uh, person called Shashin Littlefeather, she made a speech at the Academy Awards for Marlon Brando. They didn't like the Indians being treated that way. Oh, now we get to cooking here. 1979. The first Indian casino opens in Florida. You smell that money. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Casinos and nonprofits. The Samoli Indian tribe opens the first Indian casino gaming facility in North America. It is only a high-stakes bingo parlor. But Indian gaming will grow into a major source of income for many of the tribes in America. Or people related to the tribes. I don't see these Indians as being overly rich. Um, (laughs) Like I said, it's just my little viewpoint on things. Um, We have an Indian who was made a saint by the Catholic Church. See, that's a funny thing. The hillbillies or the people in Appalachia were not into the Catholic Church. But the Native Americans, one of them was made a saint by the Catholic Church, so it doesn't really matter who. So, now we get into the money. The Indian gaming industry in the United States generated an income of $34.6 billion U.S. dollars in 2020, reflecting an increase of 2.5 increase over the previous year's total it's amazing, right? Poor people's income is going down. Gambling is going up. See how this all connects? The revenue of the Indian gaming industry in the U.S. consistently increased in each year over the past decade. Well, huh. <laughs> yeah, um, they had... Um, I'm absolutely not going to get into that movie about deliverance. I had it here in my copy, but I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to... I'm not going to talk more about that movie. I will play a um, banjo clip, the famous, the famous um, non um, non um, graphic kind of thing. I'll play a the dueling banjo clip, which is very famous at the end. But yeah, I cut out the part about the movie. The movie is just, I mean, it's something else. Okay, um, 1972, that same time frame. So. Um, so yeah, the Cherokees, they were, uh, how my notes got to be such a mess was I was looking at, I think I started with Cherokees, I can't remember now, and then I wandered into the uh, Appalachian people, and I just started the Appalachian people by trying to figure out what do inbred people look like, and I found the same old lie as the other thing, so, um, so the relocation of the Tale of Tears, um, There has been almost 200 years since that horrific tragedy 
with many more disheartening events in between. However, the Cherokee are a strong people and survive their adversities. Yeah, the Cherokees are, um, I think, the largest group. So I can't really remember why I'm on to the Cherokees. But anyway, look up. All you have to do is look for a map of U.S. Um, Indian Reservation. And you'll see where this is probably starting to go here, right? I mean, a lot of reservations, a lot of territory, a lot of hidden money. Um, so, yeah, look at a map of U.S. Indian Reservation. You'll be quite surprised <laughs> how many are out there. Right? The map is pretty peppered with them. I've only been on, actually officially onto one. Um, and I used to do volunteer work in Mexico. And I actually found those Indian uh, reservations to be actually a little bit more depressing. Um, but anyway, so... Um, you can also look up a map of American Indian and Alaska native state populations to get a look at what states now have the most Indian populations. But I, I don't necessarily believe all of these um, studies. But the Cherokee is the biggest of the Native American tribes, okay? Um, the Cherokees are one of the indigenous people of the southeastern woodlands of the United States. Prior to the 18th century, they were concentrated in their homelands in towns across river valleys of what is now considered North Carolina, southeastern Tennessee, edges of western South Carolina, northern Georgia, and northeast Alabama. And I don't know. I don't know about that whole trail of tears thing, but, you know, that stuff was all made up, so I'm not going to get crazy about it and start looking into it, but somehow they march these Indians out of there, okay? But what's interesting is, to divide us up, we always need new languages, right? If we get everybody divided up into different languages, different cultures, and the Cherokees, they had their own language. And um, it was started with Egyptian hier hieroglyphics. Um, it, the parent was the Phoenician alphabet. Yeah, um, they had their own language. And matter of fact, there was this one guy called Sequoia, and he's the man who saved the Cherokee language. And uh, I think that was completely made up. Um, he was some guy born in the 1760s in what is now Tennessee and trained as a silversmith and blacksmith. And a Cherokee man, but he looks suspiciously Jewish to me, but go take a look yourself. Um, but yeah, the code talkers... Um, the Chakawal soldiers for World War One, they were coding radios and telephone transmissions. Uh, a code ta talker was a person employed by the military during wartime to use a little-known language as a means of secret communication. What they did, because... No, I'm saying what they're saying they did, right? Because the Indians had their own language... They coded things in the English language, or the, the Indian language, so other countries and stuff that didn't know the Indian language wouldn't be able to decipher the code. <laughs> um, the term is now usually associated with United States service members during the world wars who used their knowledge of Native American languages as a basis to transmit coded messages. 
In particular, there were approximately 400 to 500 Native Americans in the U.S. Marine Corps whose primary job was to transmit secret, secret tactical messages. See, I don't understand all this part. They're such enemies to begin with. they got to be you know, run out of town, and now they're in the help of the military. Code talkers transmitted messages over military telephone or radio communication that's using formally or informally developed codes built upon their native languages. The code talkers improved the speed um, of encryption and decryption of communication in frontline operations during World War II. So code talkers are actually quite interesting because it was, you know, what would be called early encryption, right? There were two types of code talkers during World War II. Type 1 codes were formally developed based on the language of the Comanche, Hopi, Meskawi, and Navajo people. They used words in their language for each letter of the English alphabet. Messages could be encoded and decoded by using a simple substitution cipher. I don't, this is just lost me. So if you want to know more about how they did it, go look it up. Because what they did was, I remember as a kid we learned to use gibberish or some of these fake languages kid learned. Yeah, you start supplementing different things. Okay, code talking was pioneered by the Cherokee and Shotawa peoples during World War One. Okay, got the Cherokees back in play here, right? Um, so I don't know why I got into bath. That was, shouldn't have been there. Um, I'm just about wrapping up here. Um, the, the Cherokees. So I'm not real sure. I think that uh, we had, they also did a movie about code talkers. It was called, there were a couple of code talker movies about that guy at Beckley Park or whatever, the UK. There was a movie in 2002 called Wind Talkers. But that was really about the code talkers, the Navajo code talkers. Sometimes they, it, it, remember, they don't always edit across all these platforms. So sometimes I'll be reading along and I think, oh, yeah, yeah, it's this Indian tribe. And then the next thing I'll read is, oh, wait a minute, he's talking about the Navajos. <laughs> so, just put it this way. The Indians were there doing this code-breaking stuff, I suppose, okay? Why would the Indians help people who bl- obliterated them? You'll have to fill me in. So... Who's the wealthiest Indian tribe in America? Members of the Sakapee, I can't, Minnequaw tribe, are the richest American tribes in the nation. They get one million annual payouts to each member. I think that's the exception to the rule because I think the rest of the places steal all the money. Okay, you could also do a search for seven richest Native American tribes owning casinos. <laughs> Lots of money. Okay, um, so the Cherokee Nation has more than 300,000 tribal members. There's a lot of Indians, a lot of Indians in all these tribes, and it's just too much to go into right now. The federal, which ones they represent, which ones they don't. So a little bit of study about has been done on the Appalachian people. I probably believe some of this. um, Appalachians that reside in the area, that spawns in that area, are often portrayed as lazy, tobacco-smoking, overall-wearing farmers. They're from the part of the country where tobacco also came from, right? 
but racially making up, which is interesting, Appalachia versus all these Indians roaming all over the place, is that predominantly Appalachia is white, according to a 2001 census, which also makes it a little bit more suspect. Show me another complete region in this country that big that is so white, and I'll show you a possible testing site, right? So I don't know what more to say today. I'm kind of worn out. I've got a lot of thinking to do. I think there's something here. I have asked Andy if she would take a look at the file and see what we can connect with these people and hopefully she'll be able to help me with some of this because it's a big muddle of stuff but there's something here i stand by what i opened the show with i believe appalachia was a major testing site it has all the markers of a testing site was there incest going on probably children are used as tools and weapons okay Children are used as the dressing in the window to bring in the adults, okay? Children are the people you participate with who use them as draws and magnets and then turn the children to slaves. So yeah, I would believe that children are being used in all kinds of ways. But do I believe that hillbilly look with the uh, deformities and stuff came from incestual relationships? No, I don't believe that. I believe a portion of it may but the rest of it, as of right now, as I close off this wonderful show with some banjo, dueling banjos, I believe that was a major testing area. And I believe that is a pocket of our buddies, the Jews, that are positioned there. But I'll know more because thinking and believing isn't the rest of the research. So get back to you later. Try to help me if you can. Remember, we need to hang in here together. And I can't be out here all on my own. So goodbye for now. Be safe out there.